Praise the Lord. Last week, we're going to continue our study on the book of Acts. We ended chapter 8 in our study, and now we come to chapter 9. This is the beginning of the change of what God's doing in his church in this particular time. Chapter 9 is the conversion of Saul into Paul the Apostle. I was reading a couple of commentaries this week, and Warren Wiersbe says it's perhaps the greatest event in church history after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. As we know, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, aside from the Gospels. Everything we study from the New Testament, most of it was written by Paul. God used a guy who hated Jesus into a guy that gave his life for Jesus. And you know what? How many of us can say that our lives are transformed from someone who didn't want to know God to someone who loves God? It's amazing what the power of the Spirit can do, and that's exactly what happened to him. So we'll jump right in in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. He was eager to destroy the Lord's followers, so he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking their cooperation in the, the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them back, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now remember, persecution started in Jerusalem. The people scattered. And it wasn't enough that they left town. Paul, or Saul, wanted to bring them back and persecute them even more and put them in jail. And he's going to round them up and torture them and persecute them for simply being Christians. You know, you think about that. What were the Christians doing in that time and even today? Why is Christianity so feared and so hated by the world? There's no logical reason we don't pose a threat to anyone. We're not out there destroying towns and putting people in jail, and yet that's what they want to do to Christians in, in Saul's time. Well, I think there's two reasons. The chief among them, obviously, is that it is a spiritual battle. How many know we're in a spiritual battle? Daily. The devil wants to do nothing more than to kill you, destroy you. What's the third one? Steal. And I used to wonder, what's the difference between destroy and kill? He can destroy you without killing you. He can destroy your life. He can destroy everything you're doing without killing you. All evil is somehow prompted by the enemy through the thoughts of people and eventually through the thoughts of our actions if we let them. And we can't discount the power of the enemy in spiritual warfare, and it's always going on. You may think you have a reprieve from it, but you don't. We are always in a spiritual battle. We may not be persecuted the way that the folks here were or in other parts of the world are today, but we are challenged constantly by the enemy in our faith, whether it's through your work, through your school, through your health. The enemy is always doing whatever he can to get you away from God. And the second reason was for this particular time, in the Jewish believers' eyes at that time, Jesus was a nobody, and he caused trouble. And they, so they hanged him on a, they, cru they crucified him, and they hanged him on a tree, and now he's dead. What's the problem? Why the big fuss now? God's word in the Old Testament says that anyone who was hung in a tree was cursed. So the people were thinking he was cursed. Why would their Messiah be cursed? And so since he was not clearly the Messiah in their eyes, 
then everything he was doing miracle-wise had to be from the devil, had to be from the enemy. If he's not God, then these miracles are done by Satan's power, and Satan wants to destroy the Jewish people, obviously, so they had to stop everything they were doing in order to stop what they believed Satan was doing. And if it means jailing them and killing them, it's okay because we're defending our beliefs. It's the greater good to keep things as they were in the Jewish faith and to destroy what may be coming against the Jewish faith. And I mentioned last week that as Christians, not that we are physically a threat, but we should pose some kind of influence on the community in which we live. We should not participate in wrong events. We should stay away from things that we know Christians should be a part of, and when that happens, hopefully the evil will leave, just like it did in, in Jerusalem. We should be problematic to the, to the folks in our community that are doing things that are against what God says. And since we and they are perceived as rocking the boat and we're trying to change everyone's way of life, they will continue to be a threat, as will we. That's why they don't like us because we want to keep things godly and get rid of the things that aren't. And for them, that's a threat. So it wasn't enough for the Christians to be out of town. Saul had to round them up and make sure that this faith, this new faith, was stopped everywhere it could have spread. So they bring them all back to Jerusalem and stop it at the, at the beginning. Now, even though Saul was a very smart guy, he was a learned man, he still missed what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. We look at it now... Obviously, obviously filled with the Holy Spirit. We're spiritual Christians, and we read the Old Testament, and we can see all the prophecies telling who Jesus was going to be, who the Messiah was going to be, and we get it. But Saul didn't. He read all those prophecies as happening at that moment rather than in the future. How many folks do we know? They know about spiritual things, but they don't understand God's word. They may think they know it, they, under, they read it, but they don't quite get it. And Saul was perfectly satisfied to worship God the way he was taught all his life. He was not open to the thought that everything he knew was wrong. And I've mentioned this before, how many of us would be open to that same thought? Someone coming up to you telling you that everything you believed was wrong. Obviously, his... Reaction was what ours would be. We'd be all defensive about it. Acts 9.3 says, As he was nearing Damascus on this mission, a brilliant light from heaven suddenly beamed down upon him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How many have ever been knocked down to the ground? God trying to get your attention. I wrote, It took Saul being knocked to the ground off his high horse. For God to get his attention. We've mentioned this before, the most dangerous prayer, but the most effective prayer is whatever it takes. How many of you pray that for your family members who don't know Christ? Whatever it takes. And 99.9% .9 of the time, people come to Jesus because they have a need. Their life is not what they want it to be. I used to think before I was saved that Everyone who was a Christian needed it as a crutch. 
They need it as a crutch because they can't face life on their own. And sure, everybody who comes to Christ, oh, they all come because they have a need. Yes, that's true. Jesus isn't a crutch. Jesus is the answer to the situation. But we have to come to the point where we need the answer. And not everyone has gotten there yet. And God knew what it took to get Saul's attention. He had to knock him down and blind him and speak to him audibly. We have to be, just like Saul, able to listen and actually hear what God is trying to say to us through his word. And to do that, we have to be in a humble position to read God's word, not thinking that we know what it says, but reading it for what it actually means. And for a lot of us, even as Christians, God has to humble us to get our attention. How many have been humbled by God, even as believers, to get your attention? For most of us, it takes getting knocked to the ground in a place that humbles our prideful attitude, thinking that we don't need the Lord. Even as Christians, if our life is humming along pretty good, everything's running pretty smooth, we kind of lose that zeal for God. And the minute that everything starts to go south, oh, we start praying real hard at that moment. Just like Old Testament Israel did. Everything was great. They ran away from God. God let persecution come. They came back to God. We want to get to the point where we don't have to have that, that we live our lives constantly without having to be, what the Bible say, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You want to humble yourself. You don't want God to be the one humbling you to get your attention. How many of us think, like Saul, that we were doing what God called us to do when actually we weren't doing what God called us to do? Saul, in spite of being well taught about God, still had his own interpretation of what God's word was. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that we just can't have our own little interpretation of God's word. God's word has to define it and determine itself. Second Peter 1.20 says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about the, by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy, prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We're not entitled to our own thoughts about God's word. God's word interprets itself. We interpret God's word with God's word. So now God's speaking to him audibly. Now, how many wish that God would speak to you audibly? Man, I wish I would hear an audible voice. Although, I don't know if I would like what happens right after the audible voice. Verse 4 says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? After he was blinded for a while, the Bible says, and he tells him, you're going to suffer immensely for the gospel. How many want to hear that audibly from God? I'm okay not hearing it from God. But how many understand that that might be something that comes our way. And we should not be shocked and surprised if it does. We've been going through a class on Wednesday night. Uh, it was called Christianity Light. And what it talks about is easy, it's easy for us, especially American Christians, to think that everything 
once you become a Christian, becomes rosy and all rainbows and flowers. But how many know that hardship still comes? Trouble still comes. Persecution even still comes. And we, not, we should not be surprised when it does. But what we should do is press into God and trust him through it. Take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow me. But that also leads me to the next verse. God says, God doesn't say to Paul or Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Doesn't say that. You would think that God would say, why are you persecuting the people following me? But what does it say? It says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus, at this point, obviously wasn't the one being persecuted. It was the people that were following him. God always identifies with the hurts and hardships of each person. If you're going through something, it's the same as if Jesus were going through it. How many of you, when you have kids and your kids suffer, you suffer right along with them, and you wish you could take it from them and do it for yourself? But you suffer because your kids are suffering. When God, when we hurt, God hurts. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Not when, not if, but when. It will come. When we hurt and we're troubled and we're in hardship, the Bible says God hurts with you. So Saul was hearing God's voice and it's saying that Saul was persecuting him. Now what was Saul doing? He was, he was thinking he was doing God's work by persecuting the church. He was doing what God called him to do and yet God's saying, you're persecuting me. He wasn't persecuting God, he was persecuting these other people. So who was Paul, Saul persecuting? He was persecuting Christians. And if the logic here is if you're hurting Christians and God says you're hurting himself, then you must be believing that Jesus was who he said he was. Why? Because that's what the Christians at that time were preaching, that Jesus was raised from the dead, he's still alive. And if he's still alive, then everything else that Saul had been taught was incorrect. Look at verse 5, says, Who are you, sir? Paul, or Saul asked. And their voice replied, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. So Saul finally realized that even though he thought he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do, he found out that it was totally wrong. And sometimes in our own lives, in order to know Jesus, really know him, we have to humble ourselves to acknowledge the fact that we may not know what we think we know. And the things that we do know or the things we think we know might be incorrect. And are we open to the fact to, to say that? Am I really right? Is what I believe correct? Am I open to the fact that what everything I've ever believed in my life is wrong? 
And it's okay to believe that because what that does is that makes you search it out to make sure that what you believe is wrong rather than just going by the fact that someone is telling it to you. Even as Christians, as we get older, how many of us have preconceived notions or have heard teaching? And because we've heard it, we've not really done any research on it, and so we believe it to be true. In our desire to know Jesus better, are we open to the knowledge that all of our preconceived notions might not be correct? If we want to know Jesus and have a relationship with the God of the universe, we have to do things his way, not necessarily the way that we've always been taught. Not saying that what you're taught is wrong. Ask yourself, why do you believe it? Is it really based on your knowledge of God's word? Not just because someone told it to you, someone preached it to you, or even because you read it in a book. The second thing Saul had to admit was that Jesus was, in fact, alive. And if he was alive and God was talking to him and Jesus was talking to him, he is now associated with the God of, the, of Israel that he served. Everyone acknowledges God, or most people. Jesus, the name Jesus is the stumbling block, right? You believe in God? Oh, yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Yeah, I don't know. All roads lead to God is what people tell you, and it sounds good, it sounds logical, it sounds loving, but in fact is incorrect. And if you're raised in America, you probably thought or had that thought at some time or another, that everyone's going to make it to heaven regardless of what they believe because all roads lead to God, and God is a loving God. He'll get you there no matter what. When in fact, all of that teaching is incorrect. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So up to this point, Saul had believed that Jesus' death on the cross was meaningless, discredited. Now he has to understand that everything that happened up to this point was, in fact, prophecy that he knew was fulfilled. It just wasn't fulfilled the way he thought it should have been fulfilled. And now that he understands what God's word says, he understands that Jesus is the only provision for God's forgiveness for sin. How many have come to that realization? That Jesus is the only way. I did a study, a word study on the word sin a while ago, and, and I used to think, okay, I can probably go five minutes if I don't, if, for that sinning. And if I can go five minutes, why can't I go an hour? And if I can go an hour, why can't I go a day and forever? Why can't I just not sin? Well, if you do a study on the words sin and trespass and transgression and all the words that are defined in God's word as coming against God, you can't go five seconds without sinning. Because part of it, and we talked about this with the kids today, you have to constantly be in an attitude of worship 24-7. You have to constantly be thinking about the goodness of God all the time. How many can do that? How many have ADD, and as soon as you see a squirrel, you just start thinking about something else? 
So as soon as you start thinking about the squirrel, you stop thinking about God, you're sinning. So you can't go five minutes without sinning because you're not focused on God 24-7. And Jesus is the only way to be forgiven for that. When God calls for, for perfection, that's what perfection is. Constantly thinking about God and worshiping God 24-7 as part of it. And now that he realizes this, that this is true, and everything up to this point is culminated in Jesus, what does he realize? He now has an obligation to share that. He had an obligation before because he, was, he wants to serve God. He really wanted to do the right thing. So he was serving God, persecuting people because he thought that's what God wanted. And now he realized what God really wants, and so he's equally desirous to do that because his heart was about serving God, not about serving himself. And he was soon about to find out what that was going to cost him to do that. Verse 6 says, now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. So again, God sends someone to a destination without any knowledge of what was going to happen there on the way or even after that. God continues to do that today. How many wish you could see God's entire plan at one moment? Here's exactly what's going to happen to you for the next 25 years, day by day. Is that a dog? I wasn't prepared for that. God didn't show me that one. <laughs> I think that dog needs to get saved. That's not your dog, is it, Lauren? <laughs> if we trust God and God calls us to do something without any knowledge of what's going to happen the moment we do it, we are going to leave the consequences of that to him. How many, how many are really able to do that? God, I'll step out. I have no idea what the consequences are going to be, but if you're calling me to do it, I'm going to do it. God says, go into the city, and I'll speak to you there. No idea what was coming. God rarely says, move, and then tells you what's going to happen along the way. God just says, move, and I'll show you what's going to happen when you get there. And that's the whole point of trusting God, is not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow when God tells you to go somewhere. Verse 7 says, The men with Saul stood speechless with surprise, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Now, Saul's companions heard something, but most commentators agree that it actually wasn't a voice, but a sound. The word that they use for voice here is the word Actually, it's word phone, P-H-O-N-E, and it can actually mean the word sound, tone, or speech. Now, if you compare that particular thing with Acts 22.9, where it says, Paul's recounting what happened to him. It says, and those who spoke, who spoke with me were in, indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So in other words, the people that were with Saul heard a noise but they did not hear the instruction that was given to, to Paul, to Saul. All they heard was, I don't know, mumbling, noise, thundering, whatever it might be. They did not hear the direction. Many times when God leads us somewhere, 
those around you may know that you're called to do something, but not have the same direction that you're given. God leads you somewhere, maybe without anyone around you knowing what that particular goal is. They may not have the same desire. They have no clue of what you're doing. But they knew Saul. They knew Saul's zeal for God. At first, it was misguided, but it was still God's zeal. They trusted him to really want to do what God wanted him to do. And so now, he tells them what has to occur. They didn't hear the voice. They didn't hear God speaking to them. Now he has to tell them what God's telling him. And they have the choice to either believe him or think he's nuts and persecute him the way he was going to persecute the Christians. Verse 8 and 9 says, As Saul picked himself up from the ground, he found out that he was blind. His companions led him by the hand to Damascus. When someone close to you feels a specific call from God, whatever, whatever that might be, you may not discern that right now. God may not speak to you. God may not tell you anything about what they're telling that person. The question you have to ask yourself is, do you trust the spiritual walk of the person to whom God is speaking? You may not hear it. You may have no idea what God's going to do. The question is, do you trust that person's walk? Do you trust that they are hearing from God? At that point, if you trust them, then you should trust what they say God's speaking to them. His companions trusted that what he was doing was from God. Had no clue of why he was going back, but they trusted that his relationship with God was right enough that they're going to follow him. Thinking that they're going to do more persecution, but in reality, they were still following God's lead. If we trust someone's relationship with God, we should trust their decisions, even if we don't quite understand them at the moment. Verse 10 says, Now there is a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Now we don't know much about him except that he was a believer, the Bible says. And from what Paul tells us later on in verse, in Acts twenty-two twelve, 12, he says a man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man in his devotion to the law, and he was well thought of by all the Jews of Damascus. So we have, the first one says he was a godly man. The second one says he was a believer, so he's a godly messianic believer. He believes in Jesus. He loves the law. He knows what God's word says, but he's just an ordinary guy going about his daily business. You don't have to be called to ministry for God to be using you. You could be someone like Ananias who's just, who loves Jesus and does whatever he does as a job. That was him. And God called him to be a facilitator for now, soon to be Paul. Can you imagine being the guy that led Billy Graham to Jesus? <laughs> or being present and being an integral part of what God was doing in order to get Billy Graham to serve him. Ananias was, was just some guy that God picked out. God called him and says, I need you to start this new ministry for Saul, and his ministry is going to explode and be the beginning of the church. 
Never hear about Ananias after that, other than when Paul recounts his story. But had Ananias not done what God called him to do, he would not have been a part of this tremendous outreach. So God called him in verse 10 and says, Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to State Street, to the house of Judas. When you arrive, ask for Saul of Tarsus. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he can see again. Now God calls him to go speak to Saul. This is something that I'm sure Ananias had questions about. Wasn't too crazy about doing. Has God ever asked you to do something that you are uncomfortable doing? Don't want to do it because it really takes you out of what you're familiar with, what you're comfortable with. And I got to tell you, that's how God usually works. He calls you to a position that you may seem uncomfortable with, unworthy, unprepared. But if God only calls you to positions that you are comfortable doing, you are never stretched. You're never able to understand what God can do through you. We use kids as an example all the time. If you never challenge your child and let him stay in first grade all his life and never challenge him to do something beyond his ability, what are you doing? You're stunting what God wants to do. If you never take the training wheels off his bike, and he's 15 riding with training wheels on his bike, all the kids are going to make fun of him, and he's not going to realize that what he can actually do when you take the training wheels off, he's going to fall, he's going to stumble, he's going to skin his knees, but eventually he's going to get the hang of it and do it. Why? Because you're putting him in a position that is a stretch for him. You're making him exercise, you're making him work so that he can see that he can do it. When God calls you, he puts you in a place that you are uncomfortable with to show you what he can do through you. If you're always called to something that is un that is comfortable, you get bored, and God really can't take you to where you need to be. So if you think that God's calling you to a position that is way out of your reach, that may be exactly where God's calling you to do it because he knows what he can do through you. I'm sure Saul was afraid of the consequences, or Ananias was. Looking at the situation in the natural and according to worldly logic, what he knew at that moment, this is crazy. Don't be bringing Saul here. He's out killing people. I don't want him around. But those are the things that God asks you to do. Go to a place that is uncomfortable for you, but God can do it through you. Verses 13 and 14 says, But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And we hear that he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest every believer in Damascus. So Ananias has good reason to question what he's hearing. From all outward appearances, it would appear that Ananias is setting himself up to fail, to be in trouble. In other words, he's saying, are you sure, God, you want me to do this? Do you know who this guy is? You ever try telling God things you think he doesn't know? God, do you, do you know who this guy is? 
He's Saul. He's out to kill Christians. Do you think that the information that you give God catches him by surprise and that God is going to change his mind because of your expertise in a situation? Oh, Ananias, you're right. I didn't realize who this guy was. God will call you to things that he knows you can do, whether or not you think you can do them. And when you start asking God, are you sure? God is going to double down and say, yes, do it. Verse 15 says, but the Lord says, go and do what I say. How many have ever felt that from God? Just do it. It's a commercial, right? Nike. Before they became fancy and are called Nike, they were called Nikes. And their catchphrase is just do it. And that's basically what God is telling Ananias right here. Go and do what I say. For Saul was my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for me. Notice God did not rebuke him for questioning. He did not get mad at him for his doubt. We mentioned a while ago, we did a study on this on Wednesday night about doubt. Doubt is an okay thing to have because what doubt does is it makes you find out the truth for yourself. If you doubt something, look it up, search it out. God tells him, just do it, Ananias, and leave the rest to me. I'll take care of Saul. I'll take care of everything. I've got it. And I just, you go do what you've been told to do. Your ministry, I'll take care of the rest. Once we are able to overcome any doubt or fear that we have, it's easy to follow God. How many ever have doubts or fears about anything? We all do, right? Can I do it? Will we, will it be sufficient? What's going to happen tomorrow? The point is, if you trust God for tomorrow, then you're okay to do it today. If God's already there and God's got it, it's easier to know that, okay, God's, God's got it. I'm going to take this step, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, but I trust God that he's going to be there tomorrow to make it straight for me. And verse 17 says, So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you may get your sight back and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and was strengthened. Ananias was obedient to God's leading and accepted Saul at face, with face value, what God said. Notice Ananias calls him brother, not because he's evidenced any kind of transformation yet, but because God says he was a believer. He said he was praying to me earlier in the previous verse. And now Ananias proceeds to tell him what God is going to do in his life. Notice back in verse 12 that God had already told Saul that Ananias was coming. Get prepared, he's coming. So when Ananias got there, it was not a surprise to Paul or to Saul that he was there. He just didn't show up on the doorstep and say, hey, God told me to tell you without Saul already being prepared to hear it. There was a book out years ago. It was called God Told Me to Tell You, dot, dot, dot. 
back in the 80s and the early 90s, if you were a Christian back then, it was a big thing going around in churches, people saying, hey, God told me to tell you to do this. God told me to tell you to do that. You know, God told me to tell you to be a missionary. God told me to tell you to quit your job and go and minister over there. And it was framed in the, in the sense that the people who were being spoken to had no clue about that. God told you to be a missionary. God never told me to be a missionary, so I got I to quit my job and prepare for that. The book was basically meant to contradict that, to say that if God does confirmations like that, it's because you're already dealing with that type of a situation. If you are praying about a change in a job or a mission or whatever, you're, you're praying about a decision that you want God to give you. Then someone can come up to you who does not know about the situation and say, hey, God told me to tell you, yes, make the change, whatever it might be. Confirmation. But confirmation for something you've already been praying and dealing about. I don't believe God goes up and tells you something cold that you've never thought anything about in your life. God always confirms things to other people. God speaks to you first. Our old pastor used to say, imagine if your kids went to tell your neighbors about everything that was going on in their life, but they never came to tell you. And what if your neighbors were telling your kids things to do and you never told them to do? God talks to you first. And then God will confirm that with other people. But it's always something that you know and you've been dealing with. So for Saul, it wasn't a surprise because he knew God told him Ananias was coming. And as soon as he was able, Saul proceeded to do what God told him to do. Acts 19 says, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is indeed the Son of God. When God calls you to do something, you shouldn't wait around for more confirmations from God. If God says to do it, and you feel that impression, step out in faith. Don't wait for eight people to tell you to do it. If you feel that urge, step out. And how many know that mistake isn't a sin? You may step out and do something that you feel like you're called to do, and it just doesn't work. That's okay. How do you, you know, one of the things about Christians and, and leadership and anything in life, it's okay to fail. How many know that? It's okay to fail. Because what happens when you fail? Hopefully you learn from that failure about what thought to do the next time. And so when you step out, my, my first time I preached, I preached for like, I had 87 pages of notes, and I preached for like five minutes. I was done. Because I basically read them, and it was, you know, the whole church was like, he's done already. So I'm making up for that today. But <laughs> it's okay. You learn from the, as you grow. And the mistakes you make early on, God uses those to train you and become better. So it's okay to step out in faith and do it and not hit out of the park the first time because you don't know what you're going to do unless you step out and do it. And so instantly, 
without any Christian training. He didn't know anything about the New Testament. All he knew is what God told him in that day, and he started preaching that Jesus is God. None of us need to be formally trained to evangelize. Just need to realize that God has already called each of us to do that. How many know that? Everyone here has been called to be an evangelist, right? Right? I was kind of weak, I, you know. God is, by the fact that you are a believer, you have already been called, Matthew 28, 19 says, go out and preach the gospel to the world. That's your job. Don't wait for a special invitation to invite someone to church. Just invite them. Doesn't have to be a special day. Doesn't have to be a, a special friend day. Just invite them. Tell them about Jesus. Don't wait for someone to tell you to invite someone. Just do it. And because he was obedient to what God says and didn't wait around, he just instantly did it. What happened? The birth of the church happened because Paul felt the call and just did it. And you know what? Without any formal training, what happened? God filled his mouth with words. God put him in positions, divine appointments that we've talked about before, in order to be able to share the gospel with leaders and kings and people who was called in front of. And as we will find out later, that cost him to do that. It cost him to be that forward in the advancement of the gospel. When we share the gospel, we shouldn't be surprised when if, if we receive opposition to it because it happened to Paul and it happened to every Christian after that. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you'll see what happened to every Christian or every notable Christian from the crucifixion to about the Middle Ages. Every one of them suffered immensely for the gospel and we should be prepared to do the same. Now, it's not going to happen here yet like it happened to Saul, but we may have trouble sometimes as Christians as the days go on. And we need to be sure that what we believe is true and be able to stand for it in spite of what may come our way. There's a, I'll close with this. Sure, I will. There, there's a story, I, I don't know if it's a wives' tale, if it's true, but there was a missionary in a church in a different country, and they were holding, you know, a, kind of a secret church, and all of a sudden, the guards broke in, the police broke in, and said, okay, we're going to give you one chance. Everyone who wants to recant their faith, you're free to leave. We're going to kill the rest of the folks that stay. And so half the church, you know, took off out the door. And so the guards put down their guns and closed the door and said, okay, let's have church. I want to make sure that the people that were willing to die for Christ were there. Everyone else who scattered, it was okay. They were only there for the, for the time. Are we willing to, to do that? Are we willing to face that as Christians? It happens today, it's happened before, and it will happen again. That is the normative of Christianity. Jesus says, hey, the world hated me first. So trust that they're going to hate you too. Are we ready for that? Would you stand as we close this morning?
Every head bowed, every eye closed, if you would. It seems like the end of that sermon was kind of a, a bummer. I don't want anyone to leave discouraged from that. But just like truth does, it prepares you for what might happen. And so we're not surprised or upset with God when things don't go our way. We've been studying on Wednesday night how hardship and troubles are not unique to people outside of our faith. That everyone will go through hard times and persecution and troubles. The Bible tells us to take up our cross daily, deny ourselves, deny ourselves, and follow Him. And when we understand that, we're not surprised when it happens, and we expect it to happen, and we trust God through it. And our faith is built when we feel and we sense. God is leading us through. God is getting us to the other side. And that God is with us every step of the way, regardless of how hard it may seem at that time. And so when we talk about things that may happen, we want us to be prepared. And if they do happen, and they may not in our lifetime, but if they do, we shouldn't be surprised because God said it was going to happen. We don't lose faith. In fact, our faith is encouraged and strengthened as God helps us through those difficult times. So we can leave rejoicing knowing that God has already been where we're going. He knows what's ahead. He's already protecting us through what's ahead. And we have a God who loves us enough to be with us through every situation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been here either all your life or you've been here a relatively short time. Hopefully you can sense by the theme of our church that it's focused on the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ, as we mentioned before, is the only way to the Father. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I didn't write it. And God is God. He has, he has the ability and the authority to do it the way he wants to do it. And the great thing about Jesus is that he loved you so much that he already paid the penalty for the sins that we've all committed. Past, present, and future. He's already taken that punishment for each one of us. The only thing that God asks us to do you can't work your way and you can't be good enough. You can't earn it. You can't do more good things than bad. The only way to get in is to believe that Jesus is your means of salvation. The Bible says, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. And that just means you believe in your heart that God, you sacrificed your son for me. You gave your life for me. And because of that sacrificial death, I know my sins are forgiven. And I know that one day I'll be with you. Not because I'm good enough, but because Jesus paid my sin debt. If you've never really accepted Christ as your Savior, you've never asked for forgiveness of sin, 
That's the reason you're here this morning. Because God wanted you to hear something or see something or experience something that you need to, to see, hear, or experience in order to bring you into that relationship with him. If that's you and you want that, I want you to raise your hand right now. God's speaking to your heart and you know who you are. The Bible says that no one comes except the Spirit of God draws him. If you feel that nudge, that is God drawing you in. All right, for the rest of us as Christians, we're thankful that God has saved us. We are thankful that God has filled us and equipped us and blessed us. And I'm just going to pray that God continues to use us in a powerful way, that, Lord, we continue to be the church. We continue to be his faithful witnesses because that's really the only thing that's left for us to do here. We can worship in heaven. We can pray in heaven. We can read God's word in heaven. The one thing we can't do in heaven is bring others with us. And if we really understand the, the totality and the severity of hell, as one person put it, I would walk across broken glass to save one person because of what the reality of hell is really like. Maybe sometimes as Christians we forget that. So, Father, we humble ourselves before you, and we thank you that, God, people spoke into our lives, that took the time to speak to us about you and put up with whatever grief we happen to give them in order that we might hear the gospel and that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that you would fill each person here with that same, that same hunger and thirst to be able to share that gospel with someone who desperately needs Jesus whether it be family or friends or neighbors, workers. Lord, people need Jesus. And I pray that, God, you would just set us up, give us those divine appointments, put upon our heart the urgency of the situation that no one is guaranteed tomorrow, and we want to be sure they have the opportunity to receive Christ before it's too late for them. Give us that urgency and allow us to see tremendous blessings of God. Let us see miracles as you save people and bring them into the kingdom. And Father, we will be careful to thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, in our church, and in this community as we seek to serve you with all of our heart. Father, we love you this morning. We are so appreciative. We just pray your blessings upon each person as we leave today. Provide all that we need, Lord. Touch our bodies. Give us the strength through healing to finish your work. Provide what we need in the material so that our hearts can be focused upon you. And we will thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Men, have a tremendous week. We will see you Wednesday. Pray for that. We're going to have that prayer service for the kids on the 9th. Be a part of that as well.